3CR would like to acknowledge the Kulin Nations, true owners, caretakers, and custodians of the lands from which we broadcast. 3CR pays respect to elders past and present of the Kulin Nations. We recognize their unceded sovereignty. This is 3CR Breakfast. Alternative news, analysis, and current affairs. Monday to Friday, 7am to 8.30am. Good morning, listeners. You are on Thursday breakfast on 3CR 855am. Sorry about that. That little ambient track before kind of took me out of my body for a moment and I forgot I was in the studio. So... um, Coming to you a couple of seconds late, but we got a great lineup for you today, as always. And very excitingly, we have two in-studio interviews with two folks whose work I respect and admire very, very immensely. Um, But before we jump into what we've got on for you today... I need to remind everyone, Radiothon is still going for the month of June. We're coming up to the end of financial year, folks. Uh, You got any cash lying around? Uh, Anything over $2 is tax deductible. And we are still racing away towards our goal of $275,000 to keep the station on air for another year. That's to keep us independent, community accountable, community run, and you know, just to keep us bringing you all the great shows that you love on 3CR, including the breakfast programs. So uh, once again, we had an $8,000 aim in donations to the 3CR breakfast cruise, which I believe we have just about met, and um, $275,000 for the hold station. And people can donate by calling the station on 0394198377. That's 0394198377. And you can text 0488-809-855. That's 0488-809-855 to get a text back with donation details. And you can also donate now at the GiveNow at givenow.com.au forward slash CR forward slash breakfast. Or you can head to 3cr.org.au forward slash donate. Or if you feel like it. You can also drop into the station at 21 Smith Street, Fitzroy, during business hours. Actually, I've realized that breakfast just needs $100 to reach our $8,000 target, which is not that much. If, um, you know, if a whole bunch of people just chipped in $5, we'd be right there. Um, so once again, any donation over $2 is tax deductible. Make a donation before Friday, tomorrow, end of financial year. And uh, station Y, we are up to $190,000. But because our aim is $275,000, we're really asking for your support to spread the word about the fundraiser, get people tuned in, and you never know, people might find their new favorite show on 3CR. So I might jump into what we've got on for today. First up, we're going to hear a conversation between team members of the World Resources Institute's Global Forest Watch Initiative discussing the recently released 2022 tree cover loss data and how last year's data set fits into concerning global trends in forest loss. Global Forest Watch Communications Manager Caitlin Thayer kindly interviewed Director Michaela Weiss and Senior GIS Research Manager Elizabeth Goldman on my behalf, discussing how the data is obtained by the University of Maryland and analyzed by experts at Global Forest Watch and how this relates to issues of global and national governance and climate change. 
After that, we're going to be joined by Spike Chivalone, who speaks with me about the Need to Know zine and website, a regularly updated and peer-developed resource for people developing homelessness or doing it tough in Melbourne CBD. Now, Spike was recently a peer support worker at a homelessness health service and has had a lived experience of homelessness and until very recently facilitated the collective of folks with current or past lived experience of homelessness who puts together the Need to Know uh, zine at Kathleen, Kathleen Syme Library in Carlton. So I'm really excited for that interview and I'm hoping that I can get in touch with folks involved in the group if they'd like to have a chat to bring you some of their voices and... Um, for them to, I don't know, share their own experiences and their experiences of also engaging in this form of mutual aid together as a collective over the past uh, year or so. And finally, we're going to be joined in studio by Kristen O'Connell, research and policy expert at the Anti-Poverty Centre. And Kristen is joining us to speak about the convergence between Australia's cost of living and rental crises for people living below the poverty line. Now, note for listeners, I am a member of Anti-Poverty Centre's committee, so just a little note there that I do have involvement with Anti-Poverty Centre, but also um, I you know, really encourage people to uh, look at their work as well because, um, you know, Kristen's in town this week for the Eco-Socialism 2023 conference at Trades Hall where she's going to be speaking on housing as a human right panel on Saturday, the 1st of July at 4 p.m. Um, and that's going to be um, an excellent conversation between Kristen, um, Margaret uh Margaret Kelly from Barrack Beacon Estate is also going to be there. So that's been um, a real big topic of coverage. I know Wednesday Breakfast has done a lot of coverage on the Barrack Beacon Estate demolition. Um, And it'll be a really important chance to uh, bring together those conversations about housing justice and about economic justice, uh, while also maintaining uh, attention to the fact that we are still on stolen land, um, but thinking about how we can push those initiatives forward. Um, So stay tuned. I mean, it's going to be a massive show and uh, really look forward to taking you through it. Every Wednesday at 11am, join me, Bunzolini, at the fire on Community Radio 3CR. Three hours of historically informed, critical analysis of Aboriginal affairs and the ongoing political movement for land rights, treaty, sovereignty and the cessation of genocide. Featuring the best of black music. Bundles Fire, 11am to 2pm, every Wednesday on Community Radio 3CR. back on Thursday morning breakfast on 3CR 855 AM, and it is 7.08 in the morning. These are the news headlines for Thursday, the 29th of June. A damning report released this week shows the Victoria police officers disproportionately targeted First Nations people and people of African or Middle Eastern appearance during the pandemic, with data showing they received four times more COVID fines. First Nations people made up nearly 3% of those fined for public health violations during the pandemic. 
A vastly disproportionate number given First Nations people represent 1% of the population in Victoria. Police accountability advocates say the data is evidence of racist policing. But despite all evidence to the contrary with this data, Victoria police are rejecting accusations of racial profiling. In other news, with a warning that this headline may be distressing to First Nations people, a Northern Territory court has ruled Zachary Rolfe must testify in the Kumanjaya Walker coronial inquest, dismissing Rolfe's attempts to avoid giving evidence. Zachary Rolfe shot and killed Kumanjaya Walker in his home of Yundamu in 2019 and was found not guilty of murder in 2022. Since then, a coronial inquiry has been able to examine material that was inadmissible in the court trial, including racist text messages sent by Rolf to police colleagues and friends. Rolf has since left the country and has so far refused to testify in the coronial inquest into Mr. Walker's death. Mr. Walker's family said that they are frustrated with the constant disruptions in their journey to justice, but are happy with the decision made by the Court of Appeal to dismiss Rolf's attempts at avoiding giving evidence. Also in headlines this week, farm workers in Victoria are striking to fight for fair pay in line with inflation and same job, same pay conditions for labour hire. In the face of alleged threats and intimidation from their bosses at Hussey & Co., around 60 farm workers began work stoppages and blocked road entrances yesterday. The workers are striking despite allegedly being told they will lose their jobs if they take part in strike action. The United Workers Union said, quote, Workers who keep Australians fed and nourished are rightfully fighting to be respected for their work. These are the folks who work 24-7 in the freezing cold to keep Aldi and Coles shelves stocked. The union is seeking civil penalties against Hussey for unlawful adverse action in breach of workers' rights. And finally, in news headlines for today, community environmental groups are celebrating this week after the Victorian Supreme Court of Appeal upheld a landmark ruling that found Vic Forests to be logging illegally. Late last year, Vic Forests was found to be in breach of environmental protections, causing a halt on logging operations across large areas of Gippsland and the Central Highlands, where endangered greater gliders and yellow-bellied gliders are found. Vic Forests launched an appeal against this decision in March this year, but this week the court dismissed that appeal and awarded costs to the community groups fighting for environmental protections. The ruling sets an important precedent in Victoria that means injunctions against logging in native forests will be upheld. Jill Redwood from Environment East Gippsland said, quote, This is another nail in the coffin of Vic Forests. The end of native forest logging has brought with it a sense of relief but also grief, anger, and sadness for all that has been senselessly lost, end quote. These have been the news headlines for Thursday, the 29th of June, and you're listening to 3CR 855 AM. Hello, listeners. It's Priya and Inez from 3CR Thursday Breakfast. We love making breakfast radio as much as you love hearing it. It's Radiothon time again at 3CR, and this year we need to raise $275,000 to keep the station going. Please ship in during our appeal week from the 5th to the 18th of June. You can donate by heading to 3cr.org.au forward slash donate or by ringing the station on 03-9419-8377. You can also donate to our crowdraiser at givenow.com.au forward slash cr 
forward slash breakfast. And make sure to specify Thursday breakfast with your donation. Stay tuned and stay radical this June on 3CR 855 AM. And now we're going to go to our first conversation of this show. And this is a chat between team members of the World Resources Institute's Global Forest Watch Initiative, who discussed the recently released 2022 tree cover loss data and how last year's data set fits into concerning global trends in forest loss. Now, Global Forest Watch Communications Manager Caitlin Thayer was kindly... um, supporting me to conduct the interview on my behalf and interviewed director Michaela Weiss and senior GIS research manager Elizabeth Goldman for me, discussing how the data is obtained by the University of Maryland and analyzed by experts at Global Forest Watch, as well as how this relates to issues of global and national governance and climate change. So just want to reiterate that any issues in the questions, any errors are mine alone, but my thanks to Caitlin for... uh, conducting this interview on my behalf and really, really glad to be able to platform information about this important data set and data series. Hi, my name is Michaela Weiss. I'm the director of Global Forest Watch. And hi, I'm Liz Goldman. I'm the research manager for Global Forest Watch. Great. Okay, so for our first question, can we start off by hearing about how data on global tree cover loss is collected and how it is analyzed by WRI experts? What approaches do the University of Maryland take to tracking tree cover globally, and what level of detail do they provide in terms of tracking tree canopy coverage? Yeah, sure. So the tree cover loss data from our research partners at the University of Maryland is created by analyzing satellite imagery and running an algorithm to detect the loss of trees larger than five meters tall. They analyze loss in tree cover across the globe at a 30 by 30 meter resolution, which for size comparison is about one third the area of a small football pitch or a soccer field. For our next question, um, we understand that the University of Maryland collects forest coverage data globally, but that WRI has a particular interest in covering tropical forest loss. Why is this so important? So the data is global, but we focus on the tropics for a couple of reasons. First, the tropics is where the majority of deforestation or human-caused permanent conversion of forest cover is happening. And second, tropical forests represent some of the most important forests for avoiding carbon emissions and for avoiding biodiversity loss. Michaela, just as a follow-up there, would you mind saying a bit about where the biggest tropical forests are in the world? The world's biggest tropical forest can be found in the Amazon Basin, the Congo Basin, and in insular Southeast Asia. So then taking a longitudinal view, um, kind of zooming out, can you both take us through some of the trends you've identified over successful global tree cover loss data reviews? And what are the most consistent drivers of forest loss across the Debray data series? And how do these trends and features line up against 2022 data? Michaela, I'll start with you. We've been tracking forest loss since the turn of the century. So we now have 22 years worth of data and we've seen a consistently high rate of tropical primary forest loss throughout that time. In 2022, the world lost 4.1 million hectares of tropical primary forest. That is an area the size of Switzerland. And if we drill down a little bit into where some of those losses are happening, We see that Brazil and the Democratic Republic of Congo, which both have the most primary forests to begin with, were home to over half of the forest loss in the tropics. 
We also saw major increases in forest loss in countries like Bolivia and Ghana, but we've also seen some bright spots too. In Indonesia and Malaysia, we've seen a consistent reduction in forest loss over the past several years. So we can dig in a little bit more to some of those countries. So Brazil makes up 43% of total forest loss in the tropics. It was the most country, uh, the country with the most primary forest loss by far. And it saw a 15% increase in primary forest loss between 2021 and 2022. It's hard to pinpoint in the data exactly why that's happening, but we do know that the uptick that we're seeing in forest loss in Brazil coincides with uh, the administration of President Bolsonaro, who weakened regulations and law enforcement. There's a new administration in Brazil now uh, that is committed to ending deforestation in the Brazilian Amazon and other biomes by 2030. So we're hopeful that things will turn around. Another country that saw massive increases in primary forest loss in 2022 was Bolivia, which experienced its record uh, for most primary forest loss. In Bolivia, agricultural deforestation is a major factor, and the government has actively supported an increase in agribusiness within the country. Bolivia also has a large amount of primary forest loss due to fires. And in Bolivia, those fires are almost always set by people as part of agricultural activities, but they spread out of control due to drought. Pass it to Liz. Great. Yeah, I can chime in with some findings from Africa and Southeast Asia. Um, so in Africa, some notable findings from the data include a persistent rate of loss in the Democratic Republic of Congo, or DRC, which lost half a million hectares of primary forest in 2022. And the drivers of loss across the Congo Basin are linked to small-scale agriculture and charcoal production, which is the dominant form of energy in the region. And reducing primary forest loss remains a challenge as poverty in DRC is widespread and access to electricity is limited. And this means that much of the population must rely on the forest to meet basic needs. Um, another notable finding from Africa is in Ghana, which experienced the biggest increase in primary forest loss of any country in recent years. So Ghana also lost the biggest percentage of its primary forest among all countries in 2022. The loss in Ghana appears to be encroaching into protected areas, which are the only tracts of primary forest remaining in the country. And some of the losses adjacent to cocoa farms has a pattern of small-scale clearings likely associated with cocoa production. And then other patches of loss appear to be linked to fire and gold mining. And while it's concerning because there's little primary forest left in Ghana, it's also worth recognizing that this amount of forest loss, 18,000 hectares, is small compared to some of the other countries we've just mentioned. So it's still, it points to a need to double down on commitments and efforts that are currently underway to tackle loss in the country, including the Cocoa and Forest Initiative, which was formed by the governments of Ghana and Cote d'Ivoire and leading cocoa and chocolate companies to end deforestation and restore forested areas. Um, moving over to Southeast Asia, in Indonesia, primary forest loss remained historically low in 2022. Indonesia has reduced its primary forest loss more than any other country in recent years, and both government measures and corporate actions are coming together to have a positive impact for forests there. These government policies include increased fire monitoring and law enforcement efforts, a moratorium on new licenses for logging and oil palm plantations that was made permanent in 2019, and a renewed commitment to protect and restore peatlands and mangrove forests. Corporate commitments to end deforestation also appear to be working across Indonesia and Malaysia. 
In Malaysia specifically, primary forest loss also remained low and has leveled off in recent years. And like Indonesia, corporate and government action also appear to be contributing there. So many of the same corporate commitments from Indonesia actually extend to Malaysia. So 83% of palm oil refining capacity in both countries is now under what's called no deforestation, no peat, no exploitation commitments or NDPE commitments. And the roundtable on sustainable palm oil also strengthened certification requirements in 2018 to require no deforestation or peat conversion. So zooming out next, uh, last thing we'll mention, um, the total tree cover loss across the globe um, actually declined by 10% in 2022, but the decrease is a direct result of a reduction in fire-related losses. So non-fire losses actually increased slightly in 2022 by less than 1%. Zooming out, so total tree cover loss across the globe actually declined by 10% in 2022, but the decrease is actually a direct result of a reduction in fire-related losses. So non-fire losses actually increased slightly in 2022 by less than 1%. And it's important to note that while we've been talking about primary forest loss um, only up until this point, our global number and areas outside the tropics include the loss of primary, secondary, and planted forests. And as far as country-specific trends go, Russia was actually the biggest contributor to the global decline in tree cover loss with a 34% decrease between 2021 and 2022. And this is largely because 2021 was a record-breaking fire season there, while the 2022 season was actually below average. And then timber harvesting is another main driver of tree cover loss in Russia. There's been several instances of expansion into intact forests in the 2022 data. Great. Thank you guys so much. I'm going to go off script for a moment, if you don't mind, and just ask one question, which is when you first saw the data and the analysis after seeing it, like after many years, what surprised you the most or what caught your attention? I think what stood out to me the most in this year's data is just the enormous increase in forest loss that we've seen in Bolivia in particular. There's a lot of international attention around Brazil, especially in, in South America, and almost no one is talking about deforestation in Bolivia right next door. Uh, so just the, I think there's more attention that needs to be paid to what is going on in Bolivia and address the drivers both of agricultural deforestation, but also fires there. For me, I think it was just how little things have changed um, when we first saw the data and we're discussing what findings to surface. Um, a lot of the stories have remained the same, despite a lot of political will and interest in reversing the losses that we're seeing in the data. Um, we'll talk about this a little bit later, but the, um, you know, there's the Glasgow Leaders Declaration, there's other commitments to end deforestation from corporate actors. And we've seen some instances in the data where there's regional success with that, but across the board, we're not seeing enough of that to make any substantial um, dent in the, in the data, unfortunately. Thank you both. Appreciate it. Two more questions. Um, the first is about El Nino. Following recent spikes in the average global air temperature, climate experts around the world are raising serious concerns about the potential that the impeding El Nino warming event will be increasingly severe. 
With record-breaking wildfires raging across Canada already, could you speak to what might be on the horizon in terms of forest loss in the face of more frequent and intense extreme heat events? And conversely, how might further forest loss contribute to worsening climate change? Sure. So immediately, we can expect to see hotter, drier conditions across parts of the tropic due to the El Nino this year, which may result in more fire activity. Well, you know, it's to be to be determined, to be seen. Um, it's impossible to predict the future, but I'd say we can expect fire conditions to get worse. And we can see this in the data already, since forest fires burn nearly twice as much tree cover today compared to 20 years ago. And there are estimates showing that fire seasons, so periods with hot, dry, windy conditions that are favorable to fires, are about 20% longer than they were about 50 years ago. Um, and this increased fire activity is related to climate change, which can lead to more extreme weather patterns, including higher, uh, hotter, drier conditions in certain parts of the year. And forest fires can exacerbate these conditions and create part of a feedback loop where hotter, drier conditions from climate change lead to more forest fires, which results in more carbon being emitted into the atmosphere, which happens when the biomass stored in trees is burned and which results in larger impacts from climate change and, and on and on. Can I add one, one point on that as well? So in addition to global climate change, there's also a, a concern and a feedback loop between deforestation and regional climate. So the, uh, the moisture within forests, you know, is, is part of this cycle, goes up into the atmosphere, comes back down as rain. And when those trees are cut down as part of deforestation, that can mess with the precipitation cycles at, at a local level. And so we see impacts um, not only of, of global climate change, but also compounded with these more regional impacts of deforestation, resulting in droughts and lower agricultural yields um, and potentially having massive implications for economies as well as for human health when there are fires involved. Last question. On the basis of the most recent data set on tree cover loss, um, what are some immediate actions that must be taken at both the levels of national policy and global governments to even begin approaching global zero deforestation goals, such as the commitment made under the Glasgow Leaders Declaration on Forests in 2021? So the context of this year's data is that this is just one year after 145 countries came together to sign the Glasgow Leaders Declaration on Forest and Land Use, which uh, committed them to end deforestation by 2030. The fact that we're seeing primary forest loss in the tropics increasing the year after that was signed is really a perhaps not unexpected, but just a sign that commitments at the global level aren't enough to actually move the needle. So certainly at the global level, we want to see more of the finance that was promised under the agreement flowing to tropical countries to enable them to enact measures to reduce deforestation. But we also need to see a lot more commitment at the national level uh, to implement policies and enforcement to curb deforestation. There's also a lot going on right now with international markets. Um, so a, a lot of uh, deforestation in the tropics is driven by commodity agriculture, and much of that is imported uh, to other places. So recently, the European Union put in place a deforestation regulation that they will not import any products that have been produced on land that was previously deforested. 
Um, the EU is, of course, just a small importer. There are many other global markets and, and many uh, agricultural commodities that are consumed within countries themselves. So we're still we'll, waiting to see what kind of impact that will have and if other countries uh, and markets will adopt similar regulations. But certainly this is something that I think needs to be combated from multiple angles, uh, from the global to the national, uh, but also local and, and even down to individual consumers. And we're back on Thursday morning breakfast on 3CR 855 AM. And you just heard a conversation between team members of the World Resources Institute's Global Forest Watch Initiative discussing the recently released 2022 tree cover loss data and how last year's data set fits into concerning global trends in forest loss. Global Forest Watch Communications Manager Caitlin Thayer kindly interviewed Director Michaela Weiss and Senior GIS Research Manager Elizabeth Goldman on my behalf, and they discussed how the data is obtained by the University of Maryland and analyzed by experts at Global Forest Watch and how it relates to issues of global and national governance and climate change. Now, for listeners who are interested in having a look at the Global Forest Watch map uh, and tree, tree cover loss data and also looking at the series of data, uh, you can head to their website. Um, we will have all of this information in the show notes. So World Resources Institute is WRI.org. Um, and yeah, you can really uh, have a look around the globe to look at areas of primary forest loss um, and, you know, uh, look at areas uh, that are around where you are to look at the loss of tree cover density. Um, it really is uh, an incredibly granular measure of tree cover loss. Um, and as uh, as Michaela and Elizabeth have spoken about, uh, this really does sort of have uh, a relationship to uh, ongoing issues of climate change, but is also affected uh, by climate change as well. So uh, without, you know, those sort of local and global governance initiatives to crack down on forest loss, um, you know, we might see more of this to come, uh, especially heading into the El Nino uh, that we have forecast. So uh, another reminder that uh, we're heading to the end of financial year, and uh, I believe that is tomorrow, the 30th of June. So uh, please get those donations in. Our Radiothon fundraiser is still going, and uh, I'll let you know how to donate. Did you know that each donation over $2 you make to 3CR's Radiothon is tax deductible? That means that when you're doing your tax return business, you can claim your 3CR donation as a legitimate tax deduction. To make a pledge to this year's Radiothon, call the station on 9419 8377 or donate online at 3cr.org.au/donate. Stay tuned, stay radical. Every Wednesday at 11am, join me, Bunzolini, at the fire in Community Radio 3CR. Three hours of historically informed, critical analysis of Aboriginal affairs and the ongoing political movement for land rights, treaty, sovereignty 
and the cessation of genocide. Featuring the best of black music. Bundles Fire, 11am to 2pm, every Wednesday on Community Radio 3CR. I'm Alphonse. I'm Erwin. And we, we are, are from, from the Voice of West Papua. Tuesday 6.30 until 7.30 p.m. News and music from West Papua. VCR is about community, and we welcome your participation at the station. 3CR is open to a wide diversity of volunteers and is a great way to connect with Melbourne's activist community. Have you ever thought about volunteering, doing a reception shift, getting a program on air, training in radio skills, or contributing to one of the station's committees? There are many ways to be involved at 3CR. To find out more, go to 3cr.org.au and get in touch. And we're back on Thursday morning breakfast on 3CR 855 AM. It is 7.34 in the morning. And we are joined now by Spike Chapeloni, who's going to speak with me about the Need to Know zine and website, which is a regularly updated and peer-developed resource for people uh, experiencing homelessness or doing it tough in Melbourne's CBD. And Spike was until recently a peer support support worker at a Melbourne homelessness health service and has had lived experience of homelessness and was also until very recently facilitating the collective of folks with current or past lived experience of homelessness who put together Need to Know at Kathleen Syme Library in Carlton. Good morning, Spike. Hey, how are you going? Good. Um, How are you? Um, A bit cold, (laughs) but I'm okay. It's really good to be here. Yeah, no, thanks so much for coming in um, and yeah, doing this interview face-to-face. It's always a treat, um, especially because, yeah, I started my uh, my broadcasting journey just as COVID hit, so it's always really exciting for me when people come into the studio. For sure. Um, so I thought we could start with a bit of the history of the Need to Know Resource Sharing Collaboration. So how did this collective peer solidarity work begin? Okay, um, so where I was working... Um, I guess you're aware that Melbourne's the city of Melbourne's had an issue of people that are sleeping rough for a long, t- you know, like, you know, there's 300 odd people sleeping rough in the city of Melbourne right now, um, maybe more. Um, I think, uh, especially after the Flinders Street, the issue of the people, the people that were occupying the footpath on Flinders Street, the city of Melbourne's been interested. Uh, well, they were interested in, in trying to understand the problem, and I guess. Um, in their own way, um, trying to learn more about what the effect, you know, the social, legal and health impacts of sleeping rough. Um, so they made, we applied for some funding where I was working at the Lord Mayor's Charitable It's a Fund. We were successful in that and it was to produce a resource 
or, or something that would address the social, legal and health impacts of sleeping rough in the city of Melbourne. We were successful in doing that. And I guess we did, we did some research. It was a research project. We spoke, well, the target was 100 people, but we spoke to 80 people that had slept rough in the CBD. And we asked them something like 90 questions. We paid them for their time. Um, and we conducted, I guess, yeah, 80, 80 uh, participant surveys, um, you know, a mixture of qualitative and quantitative sort of research, um, data. And we asked them about their entire lived experience, how, what they did to store their um, staff, hobbies, how they survived with their money, what services they used, um, food, just everything related to, to sleeping rough in the city of Melbourne. And one of the questions in the survey was if there was a, a group or a, a, some sort of committee or something set up at the end of this process, would you be interested in participating? And a lot... And initially, a lot of my colleagues, and I think the general, the general sort of gist, well, not did you, the general feeling was that people that are sleeping rough aren't interested in participating, aren't interested um, in contributing, aren't interested in, in sort of uh, being active themselves. But with the, the the response is overwhelming, as you can, yeah, the, the response is overwhelming, and like 60, 63 of the eighty people we spoke to were interested, and these are people that had been. Many of these people were long term, not like one month or two, you know, long term. And so, what it, it was, it, it was, yeah, it was an amazing thing to see, and it was really good to prove, just to show people, because you know, people that work in services are really data driven. Yeah. And that, you know, that evidence-based sort of things really, you know, does it for them. <laughs> yeah, and I mean, like, the, the, sort of, um, the sort of top-down model of service provision also just assumes that people aren't engaging in, like, all of this analysis themselves every day um, and strategizing and coming up with, you know, resource-sharing um, activities or, like, figuring out the best way or the most effective way to do something to, you know, keep them going for another night. Um which absolutely lends itself to doing this as a collective. Um, so that's you, so yeah. true. That's what we wanted to capture, actually. Yeah. That's, that's a, you've hit the nail right on the head. So places where people can charge their phones that we aren't aware of as people that are housed. And so, yeah. Sorry, I interrupted. No, 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 you're yeah. fine. Like, it's just, yeah, recognizing that, yep, yeah, um, you know, if I was thinking, oh, maybe people might not want to participate, that would be purely based on, you know, people figuring out whether or not they have the energy to do it. But whether they have the capacity to do it is absolutely, you know, of course they do. Yeah. That's how they keep going. Yeah. Um, so can you take us through how the group operates and works together to continually update the zine and keep the resources current? So we, well, we met, <laughs> they, they meet yeah. every fortnight um, at the Kathleen Syme. It's bi-monthly. So it was monthly back, back in 2018. By the way, that was in 2018 mm -hmm. that we secured the money and everything. Um, and it was actually the group of people that slept rough that decided that's what the resource was going to be. Mm -hmm. There was a couple of other, I think I should just say that a couple of people wanted to pay, um, people to work, uh, rough, people that had slept rough or been homeless to be like, you know, like, uh, to work, to stand around town and just give information mm -hmm. out, like in one of those booths. But the, the zine got up because it was affordable to us and, 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 and it gave people an opportunity to participate yeah. as well. 
Sorry, I, I've, I've just forgotten your question. No, 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 that's okay. I was just asking how, how the how the group works together uh, and and updates the zine. So they meet every fortnight, and so it's it's um, there's four fortnightly sessions. So the first sessions we brainstormed. So what do we want in the next issue? People agreed that for in every issue there's food, health, um, showers, and laundry. That's really important. That's what they've identified as the most important things. And then what start and, and initially it was a lot, a lot more service information like how do you organize dental appointments from the footpath? How do you organize legal, um, you know, you know, mental health services for people that, that are, con- that are friendly to people that are homeless, that sort of stuff. What's happened recently in the last sort of 12 months is people started to become more confident in writing their own stories, their own poetry, um, jokes, artwork. The artwork's amazing. Yeah, so it was a really powerful vehicle for those guys, yeah. Yeah, no, it's awesome because it's become this sort of vehicle for self-expression as well. Um, And I think it's also a really fantastic example of community-based resource sharing and mutual aid. Mm. So um, I was wondering if you could speak to the principles kind of underpinning the group and how they differ from mainstream and like top-down homelessness, quote, service provision, end quote, models. I guess like you've already, like you've already sort of nailed that. I get because it's, it's, it's A, it's self-help. It's people helping themselves. Um it's it's I guess it's strength based. It's what it's based on things that people that are in, been in that position can do. Um, uh, uh, strength based. It's it's centered on what they can do. So it's client. I guess I guess the the, the technical. It's like client centered. But I get. I, it's it's also like the mutual aid thing, the the sharing of resources, the decision making power. Those sort of principles. Getting people that have been, I guess, I guess the common perception of people that are sleeping rough is that, well, this is what I see in the mainstream men is that they're a nuisance, that they're putting everyone else out when actually they are the most put upon people in the community. Like they're the most, even though they're empowered people in their daily lives in, in, in the sense that they, they make things work. Actually, you know, generally that they have let they're so marginalised and disempowered. This this turns that on its head mm. and gives them the power to a think do things for themselves, and then and starting the process to change, not not just change things, um, I guess on a big structural level, but inside them Mm-mm-mm. and how they feel about themselves. Because it's a safe space, it's an inclusive space, and it gives them control. Of, they're paid for their time, yeah. so they're paid fifty bucks for for the three hour or two and a half hours. So it's recognizing that and um, that they have skills that other people don't have. Um, I think that's really important. Um, I was going to say something else, and I've forgotten what that is now. <laughs> But I think, um, yeah, recognizing people's strengths and abilities and giving them the opportunity to, to I guess, flourish. Yeah, yeah totally. I mean, it, it's like um, it's first and foremost a recognition of the skills and agency that people do have, but then also a space to encourage them to further develop their own, you know, capacities in expressing those skills and sharing those skills or, or, you know, information, or as you've said now more and more, you know, some of their own creativity. Um, So, yeah, I was wondering if you could, if you could tell us uh, a little bit more uh, about the, 
the group as a site of self-expression, but also like community solidarity between people that are experiencing um, homelessness? Uh, well, I think that's really, I think it's really, homelessness is a really isolating experience and, you know, like the authorities intentionally try and divide. They don't like seeing groups of people hanging out. So, you know, like, so they have, so that space, because it's a safe space, in, I guess, yeah, because it's a safe space and it's a space dedicated to their, for that time, it gives them the opportunity to, I guess, yeah, like think think through ideas that they never had the opportunity to do before in in, in a resourced, um, I guess. What like apart from like writing, what do you mean by self expression? Oh, just I mean in terms of being able to you know workshop ideas oh. together and like think creatively um, about how best to present resources, that kind of thing. So that's see that was challenging because um, for a lot of people that have been through because some of the people are still you know are still unhoused mm. and so people are really eager people are really eager to participate and so what we what we've tried to do is um, make it a, um, a skill share sort of mm-hmm. situation so what 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 we tried to introduce was like um, skills in terms of um, like. Uh, updating websites Mm -hmm. and I guess thinking through like they were reading their work to each other and I guess um they were getting a lot of feedback I guess in terms like that they were were, I guess testing their own ideas and I I think there's there wasn't a lot of confidence Mm -hmm. in the group and I think that's how they built their confidence is through that communication because like initially like I, I tried I as as like I guess when I was with those guys I tried to remind them how important that what they were doing was. Yeah. That it wasn't, you know, like and and it's it's distributed to like over 30 organizations and I think confidence and self-esteem is such a big thing for for people that have been through that through been through what they've been through or what people who have been homeless have been through so I guess yeah, I I think that I like I just to, to, I guess the short answer is I wasn't structured necessarily, yeah. but it just hap- that sort of stuff just happened. Yeah, and I mean, like you know, as as you said, people people do have their own dignity and agency, but because they are so marginalised, it can be, you know, it can be challenging to feel safe to to sort of express it and cultivate that. Um, so this group seems like it's been an, an incredible place for that. Um, is there anything else that you want to share, or, and where can people find Need to Know? So um, it's at thirty. I know it's at um, um, at all. Most services in the CBD have Need to Know. It's at the Red Cross also has Need to Know at their pantry, especially in North Melbourne, at the Alfred Emergency Room, at about thirty different organisations in the CBD, and it's also on a website www.needtoknowhomeless.org. Yeah, awesome. Yeah. And what I would like to say, I guess, is don't underestimate people. Um, people, I think there's a lot of uh, volunteer sort of stuff. Well, not there's not a lot, but the volunteer stuff, That's a, I think people should be paid for their time. Um, and I think um, it's really opened up a lot of people that were in, around in my sort of orbit when I was working to the people's skills and abilities and the importance of providing people for safe space where where they can express themselves. So, yeah, um, it's an amazing thing and I hope it continues. Yeah. 
Yeah, absolutely. And I really hope this is uh, the first of several conversations that are going to be happening about this. Can I, can I just quickly yeah. say, I think that every organization should be doing this with their with their people, giving them the opportunity to, to create something that's theirs. It shouldn't be just the thing that's done in the CBD. Like local council should be doing this and it should be – I mean, this is one of the reasons I got in touch with 3CR is because I think community stuff, it should be embedded in the community. Because pe- people should know about this stuff because it's it's important to them in their lives, and and it gives and, and it teaches us about what other people are going through and reminds us how powerful people that are marginalised can be. Yeah, totally. And I mean, like you know, you mentioned that this funding was secured through Lord Mayor's. Like, there's nothing prohibiting councils, for mm-hmm. example, from going for that funding as well, and um, and being like, you know, who is in the community that is, you know, doing it tough, who's sleeping rough, and can we pay folks uh, if they're interested to come together and have these kinds of conversations locally? Because um, it's going to be different from 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 place to place, and of course, you know, th- these resources cover a particular area. Yeah, this our, our that need to know was um, CBD specific, but yeah, like each area be distinct. So I think it's really important that if if you're if you're using a service or you're with a local council, put pressure on them. There are lots of it's a, it's basically a community development project fundamentally. That's what it's about. Um, but if put pressure on them, these they should be everywhere. Each each local organi- each local sort of you know um, human service sort of support agency or whatever should be should be supporting people to to um, express themselves and participate in their local communities. I think that's really important for everyone. Yeah, I mean, I, I mean, I, I know that we only only planned for this interview to go for a little while, but I think I wanted to. Yeah, just just speak to the to the power of uh, saying, you know, we know that you know your own experience is best, right? And and then go from there to say, like, how do you want to translate that into resources or materials that support both yourself and other people that are going through the same thing to, you know, access the the supports and services and and resources they need to to keep going. And and that that sort of moral, I guess, it builds. Um, it's it builds the invisible stuff, the stuff that you can't see. When people re- like I've gotten feet, people have approached me. I like an architect that was sleeping rough found it in a library somewhere in Footscray because it's with the City of Melbourne Libraries. I guess they shared, and and sort of got in contact and was sort of overwhelmed by what he read because one of the one of the people that participates wrote wrote a story about the issues of suicide and. Um, and they found that really, really touching and wanted to meet the group. And this person was interested in um, creating sort of homeless friendly spaces or an architect. And they, and they wanted to meet, they just wanted to meet the people that have produced this. And it, it touches people on levels that we just aren't aware of. And, you know, like there's people doing it tough everywhere in all different sorts of circumstances. And I think that sort of communication, um, yeah, something that's genuine and authentic. Um, it touches. Yeah, it's 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 incredibly powerful. Yeah, absolutely. Look, I'm I'm just so glad that we could start having this conversation because my intention is in future to to hopefully have a chat with folks that are involved in the group if they're comfortable, you know, talking about the you know how how they go about developing the resource and anything else that they want to share. So, really hoping this will be one of several 
several interviews or segments on this to come. But Spike, thank you so much for making the time. Thanks for having me, mate. Yeah, of course. No Cheers. And um, that was Spike Chapeloni, who spoke with me about the Need to Know Zine and website, which is a regularly updated and peer-developed resource for people experiencing homelessness or doing it tough in Melbourne's CBD. And Spike is a peer, or was a peer support worker at a uh, Melbourne Homelessness Health Service and has had lived experience um, of homelessness and was a co-founder of the Homeless Persons Union and a former facilitator of Need to Know. And um, this is uh, this collective meets up bi-monthly at Kathleen Syme Library in Carlton. And if anybody wants to access those resources, you can go to needtoknowhomeless.org. And uh, it's also available across multiple different services around the CBD. But we'll have all that information in our show notes. You're listening to 3CR 855 AM. Disabled people are worth every bloody penny. I'm okay with spending money on the supports that we need. There's more than 400,000 people who should be on the DSP, but are on JobSeeker instead. I've got a life to live. I've got commitment. Like everybody else in society. The only way to provide meaningful support is stronger grassroots movements. These institutions are never going to be our saviour. If everyone was the same, it would be a boring old world we live in. We need to do a lot of work in this country around shifting community attitudes towards people that don't fit the white, able, straight, cisgendered person. 3CR Radiothon 2023. Stay tuned. Stay radical. To donate, call 039-419-8377 or donate online at 3cr.org.au. They're pulling on the boots in Brazil and wiping off the eggshells in Moorabbin. Fascism's on the march and we say, yeah, nah. Yena Passaran is a new weekly program on 3CR dedicated to tracking this rise in Australia, Aotearoa and all around our increasingly warm little globe. Every Thursday at 4.30pm, we'll be talking to writers and fighters about some angry blighters. Panoply, panorama, panpipe, pansy, aha, pansexual, knowing no boundaries of sex or gender. Sound interesting? Then join Sally on Sundays at noon for Out of the Pan. All those gender questions making you think too hard? Whether it's transgender, bisexual, polyamorous or beyond, we'll throw those questions into the pan and cook up the answers for you. So go on, push that gender envelope... Only on 3CR 855 AM digital and 3cr.org.au. So here you are, too foreign for home, too foreign for here, never enough for both. Ujoma Umbinyo Diaspora Blues. What makes you smile and adds a spring to your step? What does it mean to belong? 
and how do we build a home away from home? Diaspora Blues is a show that contemplates what is and what could be. Join Ayan every Monday at 2.30pm on 3CR Community Radio. And, mm-hmm. and we are back on Thursday morning breakfast on 3CR 855 AM. And uh, look, it's been uh, fantastic to have Spike in studio to talk about the need to know Zine. And I think our next conversation is really going to follow on from that quite nicely uh, because I'm joined by Kristen O'Connell, who's a research and policy expert at the Anti-Poverty Centre. And Kristen is joining us to speak about the convergence between Australia's cost of living and rental crises for people living below the poverty line. Now, a note for listeners, I am a member of the Anti-Poverty Centre Committee, so just letting people know that I do have that affiliation. Uh, but even if I didn't, I would really encourage people to uh, yeah, to have a look at Anti-Poverty Centre's work uh, because it is absolutely vital and is all about, you know, drawing on that conversation from before, actually centering the lived expertise of people um, on issues that affect them. Um, Kristen, welcome. Thank you very much for having me, Priya. Yeah, of course. Um, I'll just get you to pop your mic up a bit more. Yep, that is perfect. All right. Well, um, thank you for coming in. Um, it's, yeah, it's, it's a treat to have you in the uh, station because usually I'm chatting with you over the phone. Um, so I thought we could begin with, uh, the not too, not too big issue of poverty in Australia. So attending to speaking plainly about economic inequality is I think all the more pressing given the ongoing cost of living crisis. And despite uh, a small retreat in Australia's monthly inflation rate in May, which was reported yesterday, the cumulative blowout in living costs over the past year or so has really highlighted the urgent need for redistributive social policy. So before we get into what those changes might look like, I was hoping you could speak to how, instead of spurring targeted political action at scale, the cost of living crisis has almost increased the normalization of poverty in Australia. Yeah, thanks, Priya. Um, if only it was a small problem, hey? Um, seeing the what, what was a very severe poverty crisis creeping up the income scale now to affect so many more people and the total lack of urgency among political leaders to make sure that there is genuine relief for people and that they are acting to ensure that, you know, this is a crisis. We just a few years ago went through an economic crisis in response to a global pandemic. And for all of the flaws of the horrific conservative government at the time, they took urgent action and they took action at scale. And this is a crisis that requires um, just such action. Um, so we are... Um, it is quite despairing, I suppose, um, to see not only the lack of action from government, but the um, really cynical obfuscation of what's going on and the misdirection with their rhetoric around, um, you know, saying that they're there to help vulnerable people, talking themselves up as if they're doing all of these wonderful things. And I think yesterday was one of the many jarring examples of cognitive dissonance where we had the treasurer saying in one interview that... Um, it was great that there was a higher budget surplus because it was important to take money out of the economy to control inflation. 
He also said yesterday in a different interview that it's great that there's a budget surplus because that's what they need to spend money to help with people who are struggling with the cost of living. So obviously these things cannot be true at the same time. And of course there is a budget surplus because they are not spending money to help people who need it. And um, it really seems at the moment that what they're doing is trying to find the bare minimum they can get away with so that the broader public believes action is being taken whilst in reality very little is being done and very little money is being spent on people who need it the most while these profligate um, projects are being rolled out like AUKUS and and many other really expensive things, corporate tax cuts, etc. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, like, it's... it's it's not often that you can directly point to expenditure that could be redirected to uh, towards, you know, social policy and like actually, you know, strengthening our social safety net. Um, but AUKUS is definitely one of those things. Um, so, yeah, as you said, the, the federal government was lauding their even bigger than expected budget surplus, but at the same time claiming that they're doing what they can to help help people, quote, doing it tough, end quote. They, that's that's the, that's the language that I, I see used quite a lot. Um, so this attempt to try and strike a balance between appealing to fiscally conservative voters and then trying to appear compassionate has been pretty, pretty stark. Um, and uh, it's included jabs at anti-poverty activists for being impractical or utopian in demands. So can you just run us through what was on the table in the May federal budget for people at the highest and lowest ends of Australia's income distribution again? Yeah, I think it's pretty bleak if we're saying that um, there shouldn't be poverty is utopian. Uh, there's a lot of things that I'd have in my utopia that go a bit beyond that. Um, in the budget, um, you know, so so I guess back to that issue of the fact that there is really obvious spending that could be redirected to welfare um, that is true, obviously, but I guess I always want to remind people that governments have many choices and they don't actually have – it's not a zero-sum game. <clears throat> so if they really, really desperately need these corporate tax cuts that, such that they say they do, they also can spend money on welfare. It's actually not a matter of one or the other. They can choose to do both if that's what their priorities are. So I think that really exposes, again, even more how low a priority they're placing on doing what – is really needed to help people. So to um, your earlier comment about inflation, the, the very significant inflation slowly slowing. <laughs> um, and I was just commenting last night that if we had seen above 5% inflation sort of uh, a couple of years ago, people would have been saying the sky is falling in. So mm-hmm. 5% is certainly not um, looking good from a government perspective. And I think there was another figure there that if you took into account certain very volatile categories, it's still over 6%. So we have this situation where inflation is high. Inflation or CPI does not capture the increase in living costs, the lowest end of the income scale. So for most people um, who are surviving on bare minimum, our costs go up much faster than that. Um, and what that means is that things in the go- in the budget, for example, a $20 a week uh, change to the job seeker payment means that for most people, they're still actually going to be worse off than they were six or 12 months ago because things have gotten far more expensive, you know, $20 a week for most people now, for basically anyone who's had to um, sign a new lease, your, your lease has gone up if you're a renter by more than $20. Um, that doesn't even obviously begin to touch the sides on energy prices, um, food prices, fuel prices, um, and, and everything else that we need. So um, we've got the $20 a week. 
uh, we have a, I mean, the increase to, to Commonwealth rent assistance for people on social security payments is 15%, um, <clears throat> which sounds like a lot of money until you realise that Commonwealth rent assistance is basically nothing. Um, so, for example, it's about, uh, the maximum is about $75 a week. Um, in my case, I pay 83% of my DSP in rent um, and getting an extra 15% is not going to move that needle very much at all. Um, and, you know, I pay that much of my income in rent for a property where my windows don't close and there are many, many, many other problems with it. It's a very low standard. So um, these are like, you know, really nothing. Um, the government's also talking about its $500 energy payment um, for a start that actually isn't $500 in most states. For example, here in Victoria, you have a state government program that's $250 per year. So the federal government has only allowed $250 in energy payment relief for people in Victoria. Um, of course, the rate of increase in energy payments also means that it's far outstripping that. Mm -hmm. And I think one of the, I mean, another uh, thing that the government has done is increase the age of the youngest child for a parent receiving parenting payment, which is good. Um, it was changed from 16 years of age down to eight uh, in the early 2000s. Um, however, the parenting payment is well below the poverty line. So there's been a lot of celebration of this change, but we still have those parents, although they are not being thrown into even deeper poverty when their kid turns eight, they're still in deep poverty. Mm -hmm. um, so, you know, there's so many things that, as I said, are designed to look as if they're helping but really are not doing a lot. Yeah, and, I mean, it really uh, – these these quite – Minimal measures in the in the federal budget also, you know, totally uh, fail to take into account how expensive it is to be poor. There are cumulative costs that come with living in poverty, um, whether that is related to housing and infrastructure or health. Uh, it there are just so many different costs that people have to factor in in terms of, you know, waiting longer for medical appointments, waiting longer for dental appointments that then leads to worsening health conditions, um, which is then more expensive to treat. Um, so something that we spoke about before this interview was the wholly unproductive framing of poverty as a politically partisan issue. And this has uh, led to some pretty toxic political discourse around people living in poverty in Australia. And ultimately, I think it fuels the objectification of people living in poverty instead of centering their lived expertise, which is how we've recently ended up with uh, permanent income management, for example. So how do we shift the conversation out of this mire? Yeah, and it's particularly galling, again, when we have this gaslighting um, from the Prime Minister who is constantly talking about having come from a house, uh, public housing in his background and his mum relying on disability payments. Um, and, you know, what he never recognises, of course, is the adequacy of those payments at the time was much greater. Um, access to public housing was much greater. The quality of public housing was much better. I actually live like a block from the house that he grew up in. Um, even now, it's it's obviously degraded and not being maintained, but it's probably in better shape than the private rental I'm in. Um, so I think we've got this situation where both political parties are seeking to score points off welfare recipients. And it's been that way for a long time. Um, the Dole Bludger myth was first um, entered Australian political discourse in the 70s under the Whitlam government when the decision was made to move away from full employment policy. And um, 
over time, we've seen that morph into the concept of welfare dependency. So we're supposed to think that these people who are suggesting that we need our lives controlled through things like the income control program and other paternalistic measures are benevolent and they're just there to help us because we're not competent managers of our own lives. So I think there's a couple of things necessary. One is that people, we do need to reorient um, people's understanding of who should be leading conversations about poverty and um at the moment, there is no respect for the expertise of people who rely on the welfare system. Um, we do not accept that uh, men should make and dictate um, policies about women. We do not accept that, or certainly people on the progressive side of politics do not accept that disability policy, First Nations policy, um, policies affecting queer folks should be made by people who don't have those experiences, and it should be the same for people in poverty. So what we um, have been working on, you know, the anti, <clears throat> sorry, the anti-poverty centre actually exists for this reason, right? Because we were sick of paid advocates who have no understanding of our lives, um, being the ones getting to decide what sort of policies that should be asked for from government. Um, we need to have this whole, um, system removed from the hands of politicians who are trying to beat us up to win elections. We have a Fair Work Commission. We have a Reserve Bank of Australia. These are institutions that make decisions independent of government that have um, an enormous impact on the broader economy and on the federal budget itself. And we need to see these types of decisions put into an independent context in terms of welfare payments. And if we did do that, it would actually have a far smaller effect on the economy than those sorts of decisions from those two bodies. So we need those decisions out of politicians' hands and we need them based on evidence. So one of the other pieces we've been working on is um, a proposal for a far more sophisticated measure of poverty, a modern measure of poverty. None of the poverty lines we have right now are adequate, although the Henderson poverty line, which is about $600 a week, is kind of the least bad one. Um, when you talked earlier about things like the cost of healthcare, a really sophisticated poverty measure would first account for those costs. And then if governments did something good, for example, like make greater investment in Medicare, greater investment in public housing, that the cost of living would come down and the poverty line may reduce. Um, so these are the kinds of things we think are pretty obvious, actually, um, but just aren't even in the discourse at the moment. Yeah, absolutely. And I mean, it, it really does speak to this um, complete sort of consideration of Social Security as still like a, a residual category, uh, even though so many people in this country, whether or not that is the primary source of income they access, access Social Security payments. Um, now, I know we've also sort of touched on housing a couple of times uh, across this conversation, but I wanted to get your thoughts on the, the highly charged public debate around the Housing Australia Future Fund, because that's also been framed as a politically partisan issue. But it actually looks much more like people experiencing housing insecurity, supporting, um, you know, demands from parties like the Greens for immediate improvements to their living circumstances. So what's your take on what the bill currently has to offer people living below the poverty line and um, on some of those proposed Greens amendments and uh, I guess the pushback till October? <clears throat> well, I think, um, again, this housing fund, which we don't support and we did um, put in a submission to the bill inquiry for this package um, saying it shouldn't pass. And I don't think there were any other submissions that said it shouldn't pass. Um, certainly not from the progressive or left side of politics. Um, but it's just another example of the government uh, trying to come up with these highly technocratic um, 
you know, really unnecessarily complicated attempts to air quote solve a problem or in more importantly look like they're doing something about a problem in when in practice it's doing very little. And I think the nature market and many, many other examples in climate policy is a, a really, you know, relevant here as well. Um, the housing fund, I think people are pretty well versed now in what's wrong with it, but obviously the way I like to think about it is for most people who want to own a home, if you suggested to them that what they should do is invest their deposit in Apple stocks and wait for returns from the Apple stocks and use just the returns to try and use as a deposit for a home, that wouldn't make a lot of sense. <laughs> and it would probably mean you would never end up with a home, although that's the reality for most of us these days anyway. Um, so we've got the housing fund. It shouldn't exist. We actually just don't think there is a reason why it should pass. Um, but nonetheless, we've obviously got the Greens trying to improve it. Um, it's great to see there has been a big improvement in their, I think, their comprehension of the bill and the way that they're talking about it. It did seem early on like they weren't particularly concerned but did want to try for a bit more. Um, they seem now to have a very clear understanding that public housing is necessary, which there is no um, provision for in the bill at all. Um, so in terms of things like direct investment, that's a very obvious thing that needs to happen instead of waiting um, years and years and being reliant on the stock market to see whether there are returns. Um, and to be clear, the people who manage the Future Fund, which was established by Peter Costello um, and which the Housing Future Fund is modelled on, has said there's a very bad outlook um, for these funds in the coming years. So it is not expected that there will be a lot of money there. The money that will be there will not be to build homes. It will be to provide incentives to property developers to build homes um, when what we clearly need is a really drastic um, expansion of public housing, which has flow-on effects to the private rental market as well. And I think one of the frustrations, um, although I really do think rent controls are an excellent idea and we should have them, um, one, one thing that's frustrating is seeing this idea that there's these there's people who need social housing and there's private renters and we're, we're different classes of people. As someone who's in a private rental who's on the waiting list for a public home, I know that investment in public housing helps every person in private rental, both in terms of some of us moving out of the private market into public housing, so direct um, improvement, mm -hmm. but also in the change that makes in the private rental market, um, the pressure it places on landlords, the downward pressure it places on prices, things like this. So I think we could see more sophistication there. I think one of the big problems um, that we have is also this acceptance that um, something like Commonwealth rent assistance should exist. I think you know we're not yet at the stage because we don't have adequate welfare payments where we should be saying, let's get rid of rent assistance, but we certainly shouldn't be talking about doing anything to expand it. It is a landlord subsidy, but that's not the biggest problem with it. The biggest problem with rent assistance is that it, the way that it functions, so or doesn't function actually. Um, a lot of people experience administrative barriers and administrative error when trying to access the payment. It relies on people spending a fair chunk of money on rent before they can even get any rent assistance at all. And for every dollar of rent assistance you get, um, you're actually having to pay a bit more out of your base income. So you actually don't just, if your rent goes up by $10, you don't get $10 extra of rent assistance, you get an extra $7.50 of rent assistance. So your overall ability to manage the rest of your life is still reduced by $2.50. Mm -hmm. um, so there's all of these issues with the fact that it's being used as a back channel um, to fund community housing providers, which are effectively providing competition to public housing. Um, there's also issues with the whole approach to directing funding for social housing um, to community housing over public housing. And for folks who don't know the difference, public housing is owned and generally operated by government. Community housing is 
for the basically the same group of people, but it is privatized. It is usually owned and operated by non-profits. A lot of these non-profits and increasingly they are becoming what are effectively corporate charities. They're heavily, they're very closely connected to the property development industry now. There was a time in the past where they were more, a lot of them were more grassroots, more connected to community, but that's not really the case anymore. Um, they are receiving funding in a different way that makes it easier for them um, to, to exist. They get more rent. Um, the solution to this crisis is not in the housing fund and it's not in advancing this idea of social housing. It's about making the case that public housing benefits everyone, that looking towards um, universal access to public housing for high-quality, beautiful homes is the best way to help everyone um, get into a safe and secure home, whatever tenure type they have. Yeah, I I mean, I think uh, something that sort of resonated for me across that is uh, how how kind of silly arguments um, sound when people are like, oh, well, you know, if we expand public housing, then that's going to be, you know, a negative for for the private rental market. And that's going to, you know, leave property developers or landlords in in the lurch. And, uh, you know, while at the same time providing affordable, secure, long-term, usually long-term tenancies Mm -hmm. for for people and and how that parallels with um, other arguments about being like, oh, you know, if we raise social security, then we're going to have to raise the minimum wage. And it's like, is that a bad thing? Is that really a bad thing? Um, I know that my uh, my colleagues, uh, Dave Kelly and Libby Porter and I, we put in a submission to the half bill as well. Um, and we did also draw attention to this lack of mention of, of public housing, but also, you know, to, to the... To the sort of elephant in the room in those initial discussions about the half that there was an attempt to address housing off budget and to defer this during a housing crisis and a cost of living crisis. Um, so uh, last week, the Senate referred an inquiry into Australia's worsening rental crisis to the Community Affairs References Committee. And given the level of need for actually affordable housing and uh, our discussion so far on on public housing, I was wondering if you could maybe speak uh, particularly to the importance of recognizing and re-legitimizing and also resourcing public housing as a crucial form of long-term tenancy. Yeah, I think one thing that... Um you folks here in Victoria are experiencing, which is happening around the country, is this notion that we can only put public housing where public housing already exists. And that's why we're seeing places like Barrack Beacon. Um, shout out to Margaret Kelly, who's resisting out there. And actually, that reminds me, I am down here to be at the Eco-Socialism Conference on Saturday afternoon, where I'll be on a panel with Margaret Kelly at 4pm at Trades Hall. So get down there and, and come and have a yarn with us. But um, basically, we've got the government's Governments saying that we have to um, increase utilisation of this land by knocking down what's there in a housing crisis. I mean, knocking down homes in a housing crisis in order to, you know, take five or so years to put new homes on these sites. Sometimes, rarely, they are actually replacing the public housing they've torn down with more public housing. Most often what they're doing is tearing down public homes to privatise these sites and replace them with community housing, um, a mix, a social mix, as they call it, of community housing and so-called affordable housing. Um, And occasionally, you know, not occasionally, and often that will also include full market housing as well in one development. Um, so we're both at the same time privatising public land, removing public housing out of the system, um, increasing the proportion of homes in the social housing system that are community housing. And some of the issues with that I didn't mention before is that community housing providers can place extremely heavy restrictions on individuals. So whether you're allowed to consume alcohol, whether you're allowed to have friends visit, all those types of 
decisions micro-controls over your life, um, you also don't have the same security of tenure. If you're in community housing, um, affordable housing is a, a misnomer. Um, almost by design, it is unaffordable because of the income caps you have to meet to be eligible with the fact that those affordable rents are tied to market rent, not incomes. So that makes it almost impossible for them to be affordable. And this concept of social mix, I actually say it's social cleansing, right? It's really about um, diluting um, communities of poor people so that we can be surrounded by our betters and learn how to better function so we too can become rich and successful. Um, So we've got this underlying view about how we maintain this system and it's a total lack of comprehension of the fact that 50 to 70 years ago governments were building 30 to 40,000 public homes like a year um in the you know we're now talking about doing um affordable homes 30,000 maybe in five years which isn't even going to happen um it is possible to buy existing homes and add those to public housing stock. It is possible to build homes on sites that aren't already being used. Um, We have, where I live, for example, in Glebe, up on Gadigal Country in Sydney, um, in the 80s, or sorry, in the 70s, the Whitlam government purchased 700 homes um, and added them to the public housing stock. They also purchased a bunch of land at that time, which in the 80s had public housing added to it. Um, We're now seeing public housing in Glebe and all around um, Sydney under attack. Uh, And we've got a government saying, well, we have to tear down this public housing um, block. It's called 82 Wentworth Park Road. Um, And across the road, they're building new luxury towers, uh, which has got zero public homes going in it, despite being on public land. So we've got all of these really illogical outcomes um, because there's a fear, I suppose, of actually expanding public housing at a time when it's clear that's what's desperately needed. We've seen the rate of public housing stock um, almost literally decimated from around 10% now down to uh, less than 2% by some measures. Yeah, um, I mean, it's been particularly dire in New South Wales being actually able to now track those figures of of public housing stock loss. Um, And yeah, I just keep coming back to this this argument that that these questions can be deferred or, you know, whether that is, oh, we need to demolish public housing stock now to build more in the future, or um, whether it's a question of, you know, we need to find ways to incentivize developers to include a small proportion of um, nominally affordable housing in those, um, you know, in, in their developments, rather than looking at both the the ways that government can act right now to get people housed, and also the ways that the federal government can act to remove pressures on people, you know, even if there isn't that public housing stock to access at the moment, um, by improving people's social security income so that they can access uh, a private rental market that is a market that is increasingly out of people's reach. Um, so, uh, you did mention you're in town for the Eco-Socialism Conference that's running from the, the 1st to the 2nd of July at Trades Hall, and you're going to be speaking at the Housing as a Human Right Workshop. So can you tell us a bit about what's planned and how listeners can register to attend? Um, yes. So I actually should know the URL. I'm pretty sure it's ecosocialism2023.org.au, but I think if you Google it, you will find it. Yeah, we'll um, put it in our show notes. <laughs> sorry, folks. Uh, I, yeah, I should have known that one. Um, and if you jump on there, you can actually buy tickets either to an individual session, um, or to a single day, um, or to the whole conference. So it is, they're quite, it's quite flexible. Um, there's a lot of great stuff on the program. Um, and I think there's also a party or something on Saturday night as well. Um, there are concession prices. 
space um, for folks who want to attend the Housing is a Human Rights session. Um, if you actually can't afford, I think it's $10. If you can't afford it, um, please do feel free to reach out to me and I will try and organise that because I think um, these things should be accessible to every single person who wants to participate. Um, and you can find uh, me via the Anti-Poverty Centre um, social media accounts, which are on Facebook, Instagram and Twitter. If you just search us on there um, and send us a message, um, we'll make sure that we can get you along on Saturday afternoon if you're in the area and want to join us. Yeah, awesome. And um, uh, I... Gab's just helpfully put up the URL. Mm -hmm. That's ecosocialism.org.au. And yeah, you can still uh, keep booking tickets online. Um, And yeah, is there anything else that you'd like to add before we wrap up? I think just wrapping up what we were touching on there is when we go back to what is happening in this debate around the housing fund, and the government really actually has done a good job of sapping a lot of energy into talking about the technicalities of what this fund and how it could be improved, we really need to be saying, let's stop talking about more so-called affordable housing. Let's stop talking about social housing. Let's be extremely clear about the fundamental, the only solution that is going to provide a sustainable outcome in decades into the future, which is more public housing, better maintained, better quality, new public housing and expansion of public housing. Um, when we when we're talking about that and people think it's impossible, let's remember that a week ago the government said in two weeks it's going to disperse $2 billion to states for public housing. This is completely possible. That's nowhere near enough, but it's a start and it's probably more than this housing fund is going to deliver in its, in its first five years. So I think just remembering that let's not get caught up in technicalities and arguing over bits and pieces. Let's just remember the key message here is public housing will benefit us all and that is the goal we should be working towards. Absolutely. And uh, as much as I wanted to give you the the snappy last word there, I want to remind folks about the fact that for public housing estates that already exist, that have been put into a stage of managed decline, there is a way to rehabilitate those, retain, repair, reinvest the report on the Barrack Beacon estate um, run by Office, which is an independent um, architecture company. It really goes into how these estates can be revitalized rather than requiring their demolition uh, in order to build more. So people are out there doing the work to show how current public housing properties can be brought back up to, you know, like an adequate standard of living um, while, you know, going out and building more public housing and, and acquiring properties for that. So Kristen, it's been a real pleasure to be able to speak to you both as a as a fellow member of the Anti-Poverty Centre, but also as somebody who's now in housing research to actually start getting into some of the details of, um, you know, of debunking the idea that these concerns, uh, that these proposals being put forward are utopian um, in nature, rather than something both that, that harkens back to uh, the type of social security and public housing provision that we've seen this country be able to provide previously, but also, you know, as recently as the early years of the COVID pandemic. Um, and yeah, to, to start thinking about what's required in terms of of strategy to push things forward rather than getting bogged down in politically partisan, I don't know, baiting. Um, So yeah, thank you so much again for coming on. Thank you very much, Priya. Did 
you know that each donation over $2 you make to 3CR's Radiothon is tax deductible? That means that when you're doing your tax return business, you can claim your 3CR donation as a legitimate tax deduction. To make a pledge to this year's Radiothon, call the station on 9419 8377 or donate online at 3cr.org.au/donate. CR, stay tuned, stay radical. Have you heard about 3CR's national programs? Coming at you on community radio stations around Australia, produced in the studios of 3CR Melbourne. Services will be cut, jobs may well be lost, and workers' entitlements will be undermined. Their basic human rights are as important as everyone else. Over 200 million years, individual species have evolved. I mean, birds were once dinosaurs. Anything nasty online seems to be targeted against women. Muckety is a bad deal, but muckety is absolutely not a done deal. You're listening to Women on the Line. Welcome again to Lost in Science. And welcome to another edition of the Radioactive Show. You've been listening to Earth Matters on the Community Radio Network. Hello and welcome to Accent of Women. Anarchist Wall this week. You are listening to Let the Bands Play. Tune in to Stick Together, Worker Stories and Union News. Grassroots Voice is broadcast weekly on the Community Radio Network. And we're back on Thursday morning breakfast on 3CR 855 AM. And that was Kristen O'Connell, research and policy expert at Anti-Poverty Centre, who joined us to speak about the convergence between Australia's cost of living and rental crises for people living below the poverty line. Uh, Now, listeners, I'll note again that I am an Anti-Poverty Centre committee member, and I'm also a housing researcher at RMIT. So I think that gave me the opportunity to have a fantastic conversation with Kristen about some of the details of these converging crises. And um, yeah, really appreciate her making the time to come down. She's in in town this week for the Eco-Socialism 2023 conference at Trades Hall, where she will be speaking on the Housing as a Human Right panel on Saturday, the 1st of July at 4 p.m. And you can check out the rest of the conference program and register at ecosocialism.org.au and also you can find Anti-Poverty Centre uh, via their website as well as on Instagram, Facebook and on Twitter. That's about all we've got time for today, folks. So once again, uh, thanks to folks from the World Resources Institute's Global Forest Watch team, to Spike Chapelone and to Kristen O'Connell for joining us this week and we will catch you next week on Thursday Breakfast. 3CR Breakfast would like to thank the New International Bookshop, Melbourne's independent radical bookstore and venue, for their financial support of this program. You can find Nibs in the basement of Trades Hall in Victoria Street, Carlton. And while you're there, check out Radical Coffee, a worker-run cooperative cafe in the courtyard. Keep up to date with upcoming events at nibs.org.au. You've been listening to a podcast produced at 3CR Community Radio. It's Radiothon time. This is where we ask you, the listener, to stay tuned, stay radical. This year, we need to raise $275,000 to keep the station going. Any amount you can afford makes a big difference. It's so easy to donate. Head to 3cr.org.au slash donate. We rely on the community support, so please be sure to donate and stay tuned, stay radical in 2023. Thanks for listening.